0: This podcast features explicit language and spoilers.
1: Welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where Dave invites a friend to watch a blockbuster, cult favorite, or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After they watch the movie, they'll decide if it was better late, they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never. The movie didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Josh, and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Dave... And we are discussing a movie he's never seen before, Time Bandits. <sighs> what up? Welcome to the podcast that you regularly host, my friend. Well, I gotta say, it is an absolute
0: pleasure to be here, Josh. It's a pleasure to be anywhere these days during COVID-19 season. Yeah, I know. And I guess we should mention what we're doing. So, we're... Uh, so. Normally, when we do this podcast, you and I are together, but we are not this time. No, we are social distancing, and
1: we are doing a remote podcast, even though we live a, say, I would say 15-minute drive from one another. Yeah, but we're being responsible. That's true. We're also
0: testing our equipment. And
1: And, uh, as we will be spending a lot of time at home and we don't have a lot to be entertained by and we want to put more entertainment into the world, we said we do some remote podcasts. As our way of uh, giving back to society, I guess I apologize to society in advance for us deciding that this is how we give back. Yeah, we're doing it all for you, (laughs) the people. It's like uh, building ammunition in World War II. We're uh, stockpiling content for when they're simply won't be anymore
0: exactly yeah yeah yeah
1: there is a lot of scary speculation about this that there will not be a return to normalcy for at least 18 months and at to some extent i'm kind of embracing that i think it'd be exciting it'd be a very interesting uh year and a half uh be a monumental event in our lifetimes forms could radically change what came back after the
0: year and a half Drought would be really unique or interesting. Well, my goal time, during that whole time is to be here to entertain you and all of my adoring fans for that entire period. Just yeah. nonstop me. me. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile,
1: we both have regular jobs that we have to keep doing remotely. So far, Yeah. Yeah, for the time being. Uh, And uh, anyway, so I posited, hey, for our first effort, why don't we do a podcast that I've been, a movie that I've been looking to pod for a very long time, ever since the uh, summer of 2019 when you did Terry Gilliam Month and you elected to do uh, 12 Monkeys, great movie. Yeah. Brazil, even better movie. Yeah. And then I suggested Round It Out with Time Bandits. And I said no. You not only said no, you refused. You have been stonewalling me on this for, you know, eight or nine months since.
0: Yeah, because I don't want to do
1: it. Which doesn't make any sense. This is a movie that lands, that falls directly under your description of what the podcast is about. No, it doesn't. It is a blockbuster film. No, it it isn't. It grossed forty million dollars against a five million dollar budget. So Dave it was fi- financially successful. Who cares? There are plenty it, of forgettable films that made money in nineteen eighty one. That is more than financially successful. That is that is making eight times your budget, Ugh. and it is uh, a if you're going to appreciate those other two movies. Why would you shy away from seeing this one? And, okay, let's say this. I'll pitch it to you this way. You also use the word cult favorite. So I guess this is Yeah, but that implies
0: a... that there is a cult around the film, and I don't know anybody. There, there's no cult for Time Bandits as far as I know. I don't know anybody else who's even heard of this movie besides you. I've never heard it talked about in any other context except for by you.
1: Brother, it's a cult of one. I'm I'm burning the flame for Time Bandits, and I think you will be, too, after we do our viewing.
0: Well, all, all I can say is congratulations, coronavirus, because you have gotten me to the point where I'm even willing to watch and pot about Time Bandits. So there you ah. go, Josh, the silver lining. COVID-19. All uh, right, so enough COVID-19
1: content. Let's talk about this movie. So... Uh, Time Bandits, yeah. uh, it, I already uh, mentioned it came out in 1981, uh, you're already aware, uh, due to my lobbying of who the director is, uh,
0: so do you have any idea what this movie is about? I do not, but I'm going to hazard a guess. So, the reason why I don't, though, by the way, Josh, uh, you know, obviously you're going to be hosting this week I've handed over hosting duties to you first time by the way congratulations josh that I've let someone else actually host um, woohoo you know but um and I am holding a, gu- a a gun to your head yes even though we're not in the same skype. room via skype yeah, yeah. via skype it's but... it's an add-on that you can download for skype yeah but um there's going to be a lot of me not knowing a lot about this film Josh, and the reason for that is, though, is because no one has ever seen this movie, no one knows anything about it, and it has zero cultural penetration, which is why we should never have done this movie, Josh. <laughs> oh,
1: wow, that's brutal. Um, I think you'll understand after you watch it maybe why yeah, yeah, I believe yeah, okay. it does, but there are things about it that I can't say in no. part one without I mean, giving I'm- away the ghost.
0: I mean, obviously Terry Gilliam's a great director and an auteur, and I suppose we should be willing to take a deeper dive into some of his B sides,
1: anyway. And I and I suppose that that goes uh, that explains why you haven't seen it. It's it's from '81. Um, it's not regularly replayed. It was uh, aired at uh, I think Coolidge Corner or one of the local movie theaters. I tried to get you to go see it in in, uh, in theaters back in the fall. Someone was running a Gilliam man- a marathon. I
0: mean listen, was... I I sat through the Imaginarium <laughs> of Dr. Parnassus, so I can sit through this too. Oh, wow. so you've seen that one and not this one? W- was that in the theater? No, I saw that
1: at home. Uh, what do you think of that one? Uh eh. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. It's a uh, It's like one of those things where uh it's it's nice that he was able to piece it together after Heath Ledger's untimely passing. Right. But it it it's like did that really add? Would this movie have just been mediocre anyway? Like was this just a mediocre movie, or would Heath Ledger have actually uh, thoughtfully impacted? I think those he scenes? would have
0: elevated it some.
1: Yeah, I mean he. Uh, kudos to Terry for pulling the rogues gallery of uh, ringers to to step in, but they don't really. I don't know. It do, the whole conceit is really odd to begin with. And, uh, it's, it was, uh, anyway,
0: anyway, we're not doing the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. No, we're talking about what I think I know about Time Bandits. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to guess that this is a movie about some kind of time heist. A time heist. Yes. Much like Avengers Endgame, Josh, this is going to feature a
1: time heist. So a time heist would also inherently feature time travel. Yeah, okay. Okay, that's a good prediction. I'm gonna write that down here.
0: Right on. So, um I think that it's going to involve people who are doing it knowing Terry Gilliam the people who are our main characters and ostensibly the protagonist might even be doing it not necessarily for the most uh, altruistic of reasons, even. Okay. So you know they might actually be bandits, but that's that's about it. I don't know. I don't know much about what this plot might be. Are there any phrases uh, or uh,
1: lines of dialogue that you would think would be associated with this film? No. Okay. That's fair. No is fair. Um any particular shots or what do you expect uh let's just say because you know Terry Gilliam any expectations from the directing standpoint yeah. or art department? So okay. no
0: shots, but I do because it's Gilliam have some expectations about the style. So it's going to be how did Tasha Robinson describe it? Uh cludgy uh retro-futuristic. Uh, kind of thing going on um, I don't okay I don't think this is gonna match the sort of look and feel of 12 monkeys or uh, Brazil because those both had a kind of a sci-fi-ish element and with this one I do not know why but for whatever reason despite the fact that it features time travel I am not anticipating an extremely sci-fi-ish aesthetic instead something about this movie I just feel like it's going to be more on the fantastical whimsical end like a more of a Baron Munchausen side so like instead of getting in like a TARDIS or like some kind of like weird device to travel through time they'll get on some kind of ship that like like a, a galley, a sailed ship that somehow okay. sails them through time. You know something a little more old school and uh, fantasy side.
1: Okay, so more fantasy than sci-fi, and that'll also be the method of their travel. Will be fantasy. Okay, decent yeah. prediction.
0: Decent. And you know, obviously the 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 Gilliam look, a lot of practical, a lot of you know intense costuming and makeup, perhaps. All right,
1: all right. I'm expecting excellent.
0: at least one m- big nose to be slathered on somebody. <laughs> like a
1: prosthetic.
0: Yeah. I don't know, something okay. I I'm 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 expecting this one to fall closer to what I remember from Baron Munchausen.
1: Now let's do the best part
0: of the prediction section. Who do you think is in this movie? Dude, I got nothing on this. I I have no idea who could be in this movie.
1: Come on, it's Gilliam. You could you could probably make some lazy guesses, yeah, And uh, be you know correct.
0: okay, British actors and people who have been in the movies before. So Jonathan Price, maybe okay. maybe he met him on this and liked him, so brought him in for Brazil. I forget for I, I don't remember previous pods and like the little you know trivia facts that I do for them. So I don't remember if that was the first time he worked with Jonathan Price or not. Um, it's anybody England. else. I don't know. Did he I, did he slap down the money and get a python? To, to... <laughs> I don't think he had to. I don't know if he had to slap down the money. All right, but, to then, get but a python. Sh- sure. I, I I bet he gets one one or two of the pythons to show up. Um, maybe uh oh, of course, a uh, uh, pre-fame Simon Pegg
1: a pre- prefab- I think Simon Pegg would have been a child in this point. He's actually sure, probably maybe
0: pre How old is he pre-birth? No, not by 1981, he's older.
1: Than I mean, that, but. I I was I was born in 85. Uh you so assume Simon Pegg is 5 years older than me? If there's a
0: Ten? baby in the movie, it's Simon Pegg.
1: If there's a baby in the movie, I'm going to write that down. If there is a baby in the movie, that baby is Simon Pegg. And of course, which, you
0: know, if there's a, a female character in the film, which, you know, not a guarantee, but um, there's probably one. There's probably a love interest. Um, there's only two British actresses. There's, uh, you know, Judy Dench and Maggie Smith. So it has to be of course. one of them.
1: Okay. Now, here's the question. Or at for at least at the you. time.
0: I mean, nowadays we have, you know, Natalie Dormer, Amelia Clark, uh, Natalie Emanuel. Lena uh, Headey, yeah, you know, like all 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 kinds of great British actresses.
1: Oh my god, I was gonna say Amelia Clark Duncan, but that's yes, not Amelia Clark at all.
0: Duncan, yes. Uh hey, she's w- huge. Real...
1: Question, <laughs> question. Um, your I have a I'm gonna a prediction that I want to add. Uh do you think that this movie will pass
0: the Beckdale test? Absolutely not.
1: Ooh. Absolutely not.
0: I would be be surprised if there's more than one speaking role for a woman in the film. Okay, yeah, fair enough. It was 1981. Yeah, early 1980s. I just, uh, you know, raging, raging patriarchy. If there is, it's going to be that it's not going to pass the Bechdel test. It'll be someone you know who's not named, or you know, like a side character who's a nurse or something like. Like it's not, it's not passing it. Now, I'd like to ask, uh,
1: how are you going to view this? Are you going to rent it? Is that your plan? I am going to rent it from a streaming service, yes. I would challenge you to purchase it. No. Because I'm so confident that in part two of this, you are going to be humbled, you are going to be apologizing, you're going to regret only being able to watch it once, and you will be annoyed... That the next time you want to share Time Bandits with someone, that you have to rent it again. And that and that next
0: time, you'll be flipping buying it. Oh, Josh, 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 Josh. You own this movie. I have it on DVD. And you are so starved for opportunities to watch this movie with someone. If I <laughs> ever felt like watching it again, I need only ask. I am so sure.
1: I mean, in this day and age, I had to, I had to go to a vintage antique shop just to get a DVD player to watch this DVD, <laughs> because I just don't have them anymore. I, I it, had, you know,
0: it actually I, though, I, I have to walk back my prediction because I was just thinking about it. They're traveling through time. They may meet female historical figures. They could. So they, they could. They might bump into Cleopatra or. You oh, know, that's
1: a prediction. You, uh, you did not actually say at like uh that they would meet historical figures at all. So oh yeah, I, I think they're
0: gonna meet historical figures, and so you know they might meet Boudica or Hippolyta, Cleopatra, and any one of you know a whole bunch of you know Florence Nightingale. Who the fuck knows? But at least one famous female historical figure. So I take it back. There might be more than one speaking <laughs> role, but I. I am still skeptical that it passes the Bechdel test.
1: I mean, most movies don't. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty, you know, easy, easy prediction. Uh, it's almost a layup. Yeah. Before we go, I do have to say that when I thought about the ways I could view this and I remembered I had it on DVD, I did for a moment appreciate the fact that when I was asked to purge my DVD collection by my girlfriend, because it was quite extensive I kept this and others because in this potential apocalyptic future, we now find ourselves that I personally always felt was coming. I'm glad that I have some non streamable media. Now, if society holds up, I'm a fool because now there's so much streaming. It's silly to own DVDs, but I will take comfort for that day. When the servers are all overrun and there are not enough people due to COVID-19 to run them and they crash, I'll pull one of my favorite Terry Gilliam movies off the shelf and slide it into my DVD player and just pray that that electricity grid stays up long enough to enjoy
0: it. In the land of the unentertained, the one DVD man is king. I mean, we take it for granted. I, I have my CDs uh which I never use
1: but I I have not been able to just give them away because I I am I am not a prepper but I am just paranoid enough to think kind of sounds like is... you're an entertainment prepper Yeah I am a, I'm an entertainment hoarder In fact the first thing I did was I went to a Five Below lot on Saturday and I just bought every DVD left
0: Everyone else is hoarding food and TP but you straight straight to the dvd section i also have a quick thing i want to throw out before we watch this film josh all right you have the floor you've expended an awful lot of your um social capital here your your friendship credentials are really on the line um i'm putting a lot of faith in you and a lot of stock in this recommendation i'm very skeptical that I'm going to like this, that this movie's going to be any good at all, that this <sighs> won't be a gigantic waste of my time and the time of everyone else who's listening, and if this isn't the best movie I've ever seen, Josh, I will never, ever trust your judgment on movies ever again. Oh, I'll take that bet. Oh, I will take that. Oh, oh I guarantee,
1: I I guarantee you this movie is going to can bring
0: it. Oh damn. It is Look. on
1: now. Time Bandits. The bet is on. Bandits, a 34 39 year old movie.
0: Well, let's go fucking find out then.
1: Uh, let's put it on the player. Great. Excellent. I had another covid joke, but I don't think I remember it.
0: <laughs> In- enjoy. All right. Let's see how this movie is. This is the part
1: That was Time Bandits. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. So, Dave, how you feeling? Are you good as hell? David, how you feeling? Are you time traveling? David, how you feeling? Are you Liz? Oh, yeah. Did you steal some loot?
0: I have some thoughts.
1: Uh, Let's get into it. So, Will you want to just go into thoughts or do you want me to give some background about this little movie that you and I just viewed?
0: Oh, please do tell me some background.
1: All right. So Time Bandits was a python joint. If you're not familiar with Monty Python, British comedy group, we covered them extensively in the Terry Gilliam episodes. Now, the Pythons, a comedy group that have had some success, they produce a movie called Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's a $400,000 budget. It makes $5 million. They make 12 and a half times the budget. It's co-directed by Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, two members of the troupe. In 1977, Terry Gilliam directs a movie written by him and Charles Alverson called Jabberwocky. No budget available. No box office available. Stars Michael Palin of Monty Python. It has no other notable actors other than Michael Palin. I've never seen it. I wouldn't recommend it for this podcast. It does not fit any of the criteria of your your you know
0: medium. Might not be the only one, but please go on.
1: Uh, <laughs> um, they make Monty Python's Life of Brian in 79, which is a $4 million budget. So they've gotten a significantly bigger budget, and it makes... 20 million dollars who directs that one just terry jones hmm. okay so they've been doing pretty decently assume jabberwocky was at least like a broke even they've had the pythons as a group have had a few hits at this point in their career monty python has a production company led by dennis o'brien uh, dennis o'brien was their manager at the time and he was friends with george harrison whom had financially backed Uh, The Life of Brian. So they're talking about what movie to do next, and Terry Gilliam keeps pitching Brazil. But Dennis won't make it because he doesn't understand the concept. And Terry Gilliam says... He doesn't understand the concept. It's 1984. He can't understand how that would be a movie or a good movie. (laughs) All right. (laughs) No, I'm serious. This is truly the story. So Gilliam... This says, okay, what about something family friendly? And he and Michael Palin essentially write the movie literally while they are shooting it. It shows. So Gilliam wrote the outline and uh, has uh, essentially said that the idea came because he thought it would be really interesting to have a movie that focused on a child's point of view but he didn't think children were good enough actors to sustain that. So his, he was che- right. his cheat was to surround the child. I want to make sure I say this correctly. With with literally small people. Little people. Little people. And that is the initial Time uh, time Bandit's concept. Was- wait,
0: wait, 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 wait. So he didn't think kids were good enough actors to carry a film as the lead. And so his answer to this was not hey, maybe if I tried, I could find a talented child actor the path that I would have recommended he take. But instead, his answer was, I will surround the child actor who I know will be bad with little people because what? Because they w- are going to be roughly the same size. That eh. was literally the motivation there. He could have surrounded the kid... With anybody, why specifically choose little people actors to work with a child actor as, like, a cure for the his perceived badness of child actors? He
1: literally thought there was an interesting dynamic created by all of them being of the same height, but the uh, crew uh, being small people having a deeper emotional depth.
0: I... I would have been way cooler with this if it had just been using little people actors. This rationale, on the other hand, I feel like is, I don't know if it's offensive, but Wait. it's like vaguely, maybe it's stupid, certainly.
1: No, no, no. I think you're taking you're taking it the wrong way because I uh, watched this on DVD like we mentioned in part one. And because of that, I have... DVD extras there was a bonus when I opened up this DVD there was a bonus disc Dave and in the time before we sat down to do part two I watched that bonus disc so I watched an interview where where he and Michael Palin who was the co-writer where they talk extensively about the time bandits themselves and they did want them to be like little people But but the I guess what he was saying is that his motivation was You know, and they both talk about how extensively how they're very excited these guys got a chance to be themselves and not have to be in suits that they got to be real characters. They worked with them extensively a lot. Like when I said it was written on the fly, it was because they had the outline of the historical periods and where the crew was going to go and a lot of it written, but they didn't have a lot of the dialogue. And so Gilliam basically fleshed out the
0: movie and then Palin was writing the scenes uh can i ask a question about this sure why why did they write it on the fly like why didn't they just finish writing it and then make the movie
1: so they're coming off the high of having delivered life of brian and Uh they want to make another film this is a departure because and i don't know why it's not full python but this is like the pythons have a machine moving but they're not ready to make a movie together but Gilliam is ready to make Brazil, and Dennis O'Brien won't make Brazil because he doesn't feel like it is a strong enough concept to be uh, brought to life. Gilliam shifts and sketches out this timeline about the original but, idea. But, the, but, the, but, the, I, but, but like
0: why the rush? Like He was like, you, I will let you make another movie, but you have to make it right now.
1: I mean, that I think was the, it was like, let's build off this momentum. Let's get another mm. property mm. out there. Uh, we are we are now a production company. We used to just be a sketch group that made a few movies. Now we have to produce to... We have to put pu- properties out there. Um, I just know that Gilliam okay. has said that he had... The idea was based on... The movie was based on the idea that you could commit a crime and then retreat to a time period before the crime happened. That was the concept. So it, it wasn't about people working for God or children but it was like that was the base idea for Time Bandits. Okay. And because Dennis, o- Dennis O'Brien had extensive contacts in the world outside of being the Python's manager, they just went for it. He said it like I'll give you X amount of dollars to make this movie and they they brought the t- the script in, the outline An and outline They, and they, and they cast it and they started making it. It was uh yeah, it was odd. It was non-traditional. It does have a very traditional, uh, aspect of having the cast be the opening titles. Like back in the, that's one thing of the Holy grail. That's always felt very jarring to me when I watch it is like the, the opening is not, it's just literally the cast, oftentimes some of the crew and then the movie, which is an old movies used to be. We're not used to that.
0: All right, so that's kind of how the movie starts. There's the title card and the cast comes up. And, well, for starters, I was very impressed with the cast. It did, as I predicted, have uh, a python in it. Several. Several. Uh, But what I noticed is, so um, John Cleese, top build... Yes, yes. He's in this movie for like 90 seconds.
1: He was apparently the biggest... Apparently that was supposed to be Palin. That was like a part that Michael Palin wrote for himself. And they didn't feel like he would draw any audience. So they got John Cleese to do it instead. Now, I don't know... It's fucking false advertising. I don't know if it was because John Cleese was... Well, also alphabetically, John Cleese. He is one of the first... Uh, alphabetically. Is he the
0: first alphabetically?
1: No. Kenny Baker, who plays Fidget, who we will and, talk about at length, and R2-D2, and
0: R2-D2. R2-D2, baby.
1: Which is absolutely I, that amazing. That was another thing with the cat. I saw that. I was like, oh, fuck, Kenny Baker's in this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing that you knew who Kenny Baker was. Well, I mean- you
0: know, I can name... Uh, quite a few Star Wars actors. <laughs>
1: no, this is and Kenny Baker actually out of the Time Bandits. Uh, th- he w- he lived the longest life. I think he di- He passed away. He only like, just
0: died recently. Yeah, yeah.
1: He was in all of the first six Star Wars movies. He is R two D two.
0: Another thing that I noticed too was that um, as I was uh, renting the film uh to watch it off streaming. I realized the reason why I thought there would be some kind of fantastical element to this and there might be a ship is that um, I po- probably saw the box at yeah. your place and saw there's a big-ass fucking ship on the cover. And no, I was th- like, oh, that's that's probably where that came from.
1: It's not that you saw it at my place. It's that when we were going to do the 12 Monkeys podcast, you told me to bring 12 Monkeys the DVD over. I said I had it on DVD. And then I rolled in and you were like, do you have the movie? And I was like, oh, yeah. And I had brought all my Terry Gilliam DVDs over. So I like threw out Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And you're like, Josh, that's not the DVD. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Uh, and I reached into my bag and I like probably threw this one out. It was like Time Bandits. And you're like, no, nope, that's also not the Terry Gilliam movie we're doing. Anyway, uh, so this has quite the cast, Ian Holm. Yep. I mean, where is your mind like? What were you thinking at the at the at the beginning? What, cause well, it, the
0: cast. I was impressed by the cast. I was like, oh wow, there are a bunch of pythons in this. Uh, oh wow, Kenny Baker's in this, and then I was like, oh fucking Shelley Duvall and um, what's her name from Brazil,
1: uh, Catherine Hellman.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, and so I was like, oh wow, the cast. And you know, in home to obviously. And then a like,
1: name flashes across the screen that o'ershines all others. Sean David Warner. Sean Connery.
0: Yes, Sean Connery shows up. But I, I, I was also excited to see David Warner's name. I like he's, him.
1: He's fantastic. He's actually one of th- I th- my favorite parts of the movie. Like and and we will get into the plot, yeah. I guess, in a moment. And then through that we'll get through your judgments of it. Because I will say, Dave, before we get into the plot, the thing I realized on this watch through mm-hmm. this
0: is a children's movie. Is it though, I mean is it really, because this this is something that I have written down for something I wanted to bring up, which was uh, who is this movie really made for? Because superficially it is a children's movie, but the whole time watching it I kept trying to imagine a child watching this film and enjoying it, and I can't really see it. Well
1: I can tell you that I remembered while I was watching it that I know this movie because the reason you asked how do I know this movie I'm the only one there's no cult of personality around it I know this movie because my dad showed it to me when I was a kid but you are a grade A weirdo and I loved it and I yeah and I and I understand now as an adult watching it again I was like Okay, yeah, I assume Dave's gonna come in with some fire about how this was <laughs> this didn't hold up, but uh, I remember exactly my experience watching it as a kid and remembering sort of like sense memorying why I enjoyed it then. So, let I mean, do you want to talk about your feelings before we? Because I actually don't think this is a movie that that needs the most concrete. like plot breakdown like we'll go through it and we can talk about the movie's strengths and weaknesses along the way but what was your overall impression
0: it isn't a bad movie but neither is it in my opinion a particularly good one Um, to me it felt like a it, it was an ambitious mess you know what I could see in it was All of the qualities that Terry Gilliam would deploy later in his career to much better effect in films like uh, Brazil or Baron Munchausen. This felt like a a more scattershot, less polished, first dry run at what Baron Munchausen is, which to me is... Uh, a, a similar film in a lot of ways, but like with just a lot, it's it's tighter and better, at least from my memory. You know, so it just it felt like there's a lot of there's a lot there that's good, but it felt like a real mess going in. And since we are you know starting with the plot, and maybe we can start with talking about the the lead, the main actor in this film, the kid. I'm sorry, I'm sure he is a wonderful person, but he can't act. He's, he is bad. He is a, a charisma void at the center of this film, and I thought that that harmed it.
1: You're talking about Craig Warnock as Kevin. Yeah,
0: and I'm really sorry. Like I try not to be harsh in that way whenever I can, but in this instance, I just felt like he really was not good.
1: Well, that's interesting you say that because Craig was not someone who wanted to be an actor, and he has only been in two films, this and one he made, uh, I think, two years later. Uh, He went to the audition because his brother was auditioning for the movie. And Terry Gilliam, and this is on Terry Gilliam, said, no, I'm not interested in that kid who auditioned. But like his really quiet brother that was there in the room with him, what's that kid's deal? And he cast him based on his introvertedness.
0: Yeah, that's fucking stupid. It it reminds me of um, similar disasters. So like you look at the last Airbender, another uh, a movie that oh, Am I This film, you know, we're living. It, in that's a M- worse film, but it has a, an equal hole in the center with the lead and it's because the kid's great at martial arts and he sent m night Shyamalan uh an audition tape of him doing the martial arts and Shyamalan was like oh he looks kind of like ang and he can do all the martial arts bits you've got the you've got the part kid but he didn't think about the acting and the kid can't act so you you know there's a parallel there like this kid he just his line readings are very flat, very monotone, you know there's there's a part near the end where like all of the time bandits, uh the crew of little people who are stealing things that he's joined up with, they're like running into a trap that's been set up by David Warner, the bad guy, yeah, and he's like he's like, "No, don't go. It's a trap uh, yeah. and like. It's just so flat and so unemotional, and th- there are multiple scenes where it's it, he's robotic, and it, I feel like it infects some of the other actors at a few points. There were uh, other parts where I felt like the acting was just not very strong.
1: I'll definitely get on board that he's not very charismatic. I think that, for me, it doesn't take the needle a ton in either direction because on this view I was, I mean, I have this, like I said, recollection of the movie of like simply enjoying all of it. And so on this view, I was very much like, uh, more watching hyper, it with
0: a more critical eye
1: and a lot more hyperreactive to like the things that I did not like. So his performance, yeah, admittedly wouldn't. And it's also the same thing. Gilliam complained endlessly about about the child who was cast as Bruce Willis, as young Bruce Willis in 12 monkeys as like being like, he was like, he has the perfect eyes, but he can't act. And it's like, Terry, maybe Kids you should barely in it. Maybe you shouldn't be making casting decisions when it comes to like young actors. Cause you don't have like, you seem to have a perfect idea of how to slot adults into roles, but you seem to have no handle And I'm
0: sorry, too, but also this excuse that, like, kids can't act is fucking bullshit because we've seen it in our lifetimes. You've got people like, you know, your Elijah Woods and Haley Joel Osmets and your Dakota Fannings who are all, you know, Saoirse Ronan was great as a child. Fucking Anna Paquin won an Oscar as a fucking baby.
1: No, Terry Gilliam is a a bit of a blowhard. He's a bit of a, he's got some issues. Uh, I don't think his issues are necessarily, like that detrimental but they definitely impact his movies and this i mean was what i was trying to illustrate with the python references is this the first time or i guess the second time uh he's directing alone and it's the first time he's directing alone with a budget and there's an there was an interesting thing i read where we've talked about how sean connery is in this movie and sean connery has to ride a horse but apparently they only had him because he was so big at the time for two days, essentially. So on the first day, and that was like the first day they shot anything for the movie. So there's that way.
0: Did he get hurt? And that's why he's sitting down for all the rest of his scenes.
1: No, 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 nothing like that. But more that he, uh, was essentially like they went to shoot that battle scene. And Sean Connery was like, well, Terry, you know, you're going to shoot like all of my shots first. And then I'll be in my trailer like waiting to come out for more. But you get that like, I'm not just going to be here all day like shooting everything. And Terry Gilliam was like, what? No, wait, what? You're going to. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, fine. And like And apparently it was like then he was like, I don't know how to shoot him getting on the horse if him getting on the horse involves production assistance. And Connery was like, you'll just fix it in post. And Gerlion yeah, was like, oh, wow, I never thought of that idea before. Like, fix it. Like, like there's this is, again, an anecdote I read in preparation. Fix it in post. This. But, like, Connery was like, oh, don't worry, Terry. You'll fix it in post. That was bad, Connery. Come
0: on. We it's gotta- a terrible Connery. But don't worry. We'll fix it in post. Connery said, <laughs> don't
1: worry about how it looks when I get on the horse. You'll fix it in post. And that is true. Like, all, you don't have to show him mounting it. You just have to show him, like,
0: in why shoot ch- him in the fight scene at all he's wearing a mask
1: yeah yeah
0: great question both of them were all right well, all right so um, we
1: should talk about the plot
0: though because we, one, one other thing though that ba- i want to mention all right and this is actually to the movie's credit okay it's that um and and it goes to the beginning of the film which is that so the movie begins and um we get to see that it's in um it's in the British suburbs and I immediately got kind of like, a, oh, this has got kind of a early Steven Spielberg slash Tim Burtony feel to it with this like off even more on the Tim Burton side even with because it's got the cookie cutter suburban feel, but a little off kilter. Yes, You know, because it's Gilliam and maybe also, for our eyes, aided by the fact that it's also British. I didn't know that other countries had suburbs. Did you, Josh? I (laughs) thought it was just an American thing. I had an um,
1: an impression.
0: I was judging this movie very harshly against those two directors' work at the beginning. You know, like with the kids acting, where I kept kept comparing him to Elliot from uh, E.T., for instance, or, or Sean Astin in The Goonies, where I'm just like man like you know if you had a better kid lead and then also it's kind of like this just feels like such a poor attempt to recreate the work of burton and spielberg and then i i thought about it and realized the date on this which is 81 which is before pretty much any of that certainly before the burton stuff and before almost all of the spielberg stuff like et didn't come out until 82 yeah, you know he'd done Close Encounters, I think, by then. But um, this predates all of that.
1: Yeah, they so, shot it. They actually shot it in I think seventy nine.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I- in a way, I actually do give this credit because it was tapping into this this thing, this whole you know the idea that you've got the your cookie cutter suburban stulted oppressive, straight laced middle class society with like all of this magic hovering just below the surface for children to discover. That was something that's been now, that's a total Spielberg thing. And then, you know, Burton and all of these guys that has been mined so much after that. And this actually did it. I thought I was ripping it off poorly. And then I realized, no, it actually did it first. So I, I will give it credit for that.
1: Well, that is the secret of the movie is that it was like, uh, look, looking at the, the numbers, Um, it was a huge success and I talked about it in, in the, in uh, part one, but so Gilliam and, uh, Palin, when they shopped this movie, it was rejected. It was rejected when they shopped the script and they made it anyway with their manager and, and bat and funding by George Harrison of the Beatles. And then the other thing was they were rejected after they had a cut of the movie. No one would release it. And it got released by a studio that was like you know the the B movie of the major studio market, and it was a crazy success like like again forty million dollars against a five million dollar budget at that time was impressive yeah, that's,
0: that's that's good um well, so that being the case the the movie does begin with this kind of um weird british suburbs and we see a little bit of the kid with his family before the shenanigans start i do kind of wish that we had learned we'd gotten a little bit more time or somehow learned more about the kid because and i think this maybe goes a little bit also to his flatness but i never really felt like i got a good sense of who he was yeah we see him we see him reading his history book And so we know he's into history and his room is filled with like figurines. But like by the time the movie is going, like I realized, you know, halfway into it, like I I just I still have no idea who this kid is.
1: It's very similar to Brazil because it opens with a TV program in Brazil. It's a commercial. But in this, it's the and it's a very nice thing. It's Jim Broadbent who I who I didn't recognize he's so young. He's hosting a show called uh uh he's hosting a like nightly program called uh god I wrote it down your money or your life
0: which is hilarious and, and it looked so
1: weird. It's so odd and it really does look like they kill you if the questions aren't answered correctly because there it, is there's a shot of a, a sequence where a woman is being asked a question, and her husband, who has a cast on one leg, is being lowered into a crane of custard, head first. If he can't, if she gets it wrong, <laughs> and then like not like double dare, just dunked in it, like left there to drown.
0: Yeah, and, it reminded me a little of uh, I'd buy that for a dollar on uh, in RoboCop. Yeah,
1: and. Uh, and the kid is like in the background, like kinda bored, kinda wants to get out of there. The parents yell at him and sent him to bed. They're obviously monsters, or it's like at least tried to, you know, portray Well, them. but
0: we we don't really get very much time with them to establish that. But they're certainly not good parents. They're not paying close attention to their kid.
1: They're very uh, techno and appliance obsessed. They have like 17 blenders for some reason. I don't know if you noticed that she makes them breakfast in a blender, but then there's three more blenders on a shelf behind them.
0: And I then... only noticed the one blender.
1: Oh, man. So they, but what, uh, we've glossed over a thing. They send the kid to bed, and what happens?
0: Uh, knight comes busting through his wall
1: yeah so kind of the first like cool terry gilliam effect is like a knight literally rips out of his wardrobe and bounds across his bed and then his bed turn like he is actually uh sort of juxtaposed against an actual forest that the knight runs into and then it was what a dream uh figment of his imagination
0: everything is normal his dad yeah. knocks
1: on the door and is like, "Yo, kid,
0: stop making so much goddamn noise." And so he goes to bed the next night, and this time he wants proof, so he's got his little Polaroid camera with him. Polaroids um, take a—they—they
1: they have a big platform in this movie. It's, it's yeah, actually kind of surprising they weren't a sponsor.
0: Yeah, that's a missed opportunity to get a little product placement money, but um. This time coming through is our team of time bandits. It's a group of little people, thieves. And the moment I was a little worried when they came through because I was like, oh, okay, there's this group in here. And my first thought was that, like, where is this movie going to fall on the Vern Troyer, Peter Dinklage scale of dignity? Yeah. You know? Where, you know, on the one end, it's little people treated with no dignity and it's horrible. And on the other end, you've got Peter fucking Dinklage. How's this going to work out? Um, uh, It's not the worst, but it's also not great. Well, you've got
1: the Time Bandits, and I'm just going to rattle them off here. You've got Kenny Baker as Fidget. Malcolm Dixon as Strutter, Mike Edmonds as Og, Jack Purvis as Wally, Tiny Ross as Vermin. I didn't make that up. That's his uh, stage name, and uh, and then Randall, uh, David Rappaport.
0: So yeah, now uh, part of the problem too is that uh, also you know also so you've got the kid who can't act. That's a problem. Then the other ostensible leads of this movie is the group of time bandits. And it's the same problem you kind of get in uh, the Hobbit movies where – and this has nothing to do with them being dwarves. But, like, you've got this big group of dwarves hanging out where it's more that they're a group where they're not very well differentiated. And I never really knew who was who, what anybody's name was. And it was only the leader of the group, Thorin and the Hobbit, and Randall in this movie who had – enough of a distinct personality and name or anything where I could like recognize him and, and tell him apart from the rest.
1: So that was, I think maybe it's because I've had multiple watches and I can't say, I think I've had about four. Um, I agree that it's very blurry. One of this movie's biggest issues. It's very muddy. Almost Always. What is happening, <laughs> or who, like, I honestly rewatching this movie was like, I could see them doing this on how did this get made, and I could see Jason Manzoukas being like, and then they all just break through the closet, like, what? I guess that was yeah. a bad, that was a bad Manzoukis, but you know, him it's not be as like, bad
0: as your Sean Connery. And
1: he could be like, and Paul be like, yeah, yeah, a bunch of uh, little people who would uh, troll me on Twitter. <laughs> I'm Paul Shearer, I have a lot of podcasts, check them out.
0: But well, anyway, anyway so, no. This so, movie has
1: this movie is like uh, it's Terry Gilliam, but it's sort of unformed, and parts of it are really good, and parts of it are not great, and and you have to t- yeah, it's a mess. S- like taken as a whole, a mess is a great way to describe it. So I would not be surprised if this was taken on by other podcasts in a negative way. I still enjoyed it, and I still think there's a lot of merit to it. But I, I this viewing, I was truly aware of like. I was writing down the names of the various time bandits and I was like, I've seen this movie four times and I'm still having trouble figuring out who is who. So I get that at a certain point I established who fidget was Kenny Baker and Wally, but because they have a particularly emotional moment towards the the end end of the movie, it's hard not to like identify the two of them at the beginning. It's very easy, but um, they bust in the kid's room. They accuse the kid of, Try, I don't know trying to trap them there or something they and he's like I didn't do anything wrong and they're like you know where the exit is and they pin him against a wall he has now this wall is covered in images it's sort of like a beautiful mind if it were done by a child who had a lot of fantasy visions it's like he's been clipping things from magazines and basically putting his own timeline on the wall would you have a yeah. wall like that when you were growing up Dave
0: I mean, I I had uh, uh posters and things I put up on the wall, and um you know I uh, on my bedroom door at my parents' house, uh it still is covered with like yeah like little things that either like my friends drew or like I saw that I thought looked cool and cut out of like a newspaper or magazine. It, it's like that, yeah.
1: It's a time capsule to your youth. Yeah, now, this is what this child is putting on his wall, and they throw him against it, and it uh falls
0: backward which is a cool
1: effect i was gonna say one of the best effects of the whole movie
0: which is michelle gondry
1: yeah the the wall starts falling backwards further and further down a corridor and you know they realize this is their way out of this dimension they don't really explain what's happening at the time but then it is this great at the time (laughs) at the time sorry this great practical effect is broken up by a very incredibly hokey and sad sort of Wizard, Oz, Wizard of Oz effect, where a human sort of head starts bellowing at them behind fog and smoke. Now, Dave, you were the skeptic on this, and this was your first watch. What was your response to that to that moment?
0: Um, I. Didn't think it looked great, but I was willing to roll with it just because um, I'm. I, I didn't want to knock it for having special effects that look dated to my eyes, given that it's from, you know, forty years ago.
1: That's that's fair. I mean, Robin's response was like, "Yeesh," and I was also like, "Yeah." Apologetically, that does not look good, but it no, is a. That, fa- that
0: I, I have plenty of critiques of this film that actually was not especially one of them.
1: Now that was a famous actor though. Do you know who that, that? No, I wasn't was? familiar with him. Ralph Richardson. Didn't know him. I don't know him from movies, but like Sir Ralph Richardson, I know is like a Shakespearean, like, I mean, he must've played Hamlet or something. So they escape, uh, what is ostensibly a headless wizard of Oz. I mean, a head and bodiless it's- wizard of Oz figure, <laughs>
0: But he is, he is implied to be God. Yeah. They call him the basically. Supreme being. Yeah.
1: Um, and they crash and land in Napoleonic war times, which yes. is is, uh, uh, it's not really explicitly shown at first, but you get, you know, fairly quickly. Um, and we get our first, yeah, like when you
0: meet Napoleon.
1: Well, that's like, our, you get your first bit of what this movie is going to be. Because they run into and encounter Napoleon, who's Napoleon, who is played by Ian Holm, uh, who I think is excellent. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why Dad showed it to me is because he was a puppeteer. And this is this scene where Napoleon is watching a hand puppet show, like a Punch and Judy show. Now, for, wow. for any listeners who don't know what a Punch and Judy show is, which is probably most of you, it was an old hand puppet art form where punch who was the lead character he was kind of a dick and every plot revolved around him beating up every other puppet and eventually killing them and typically the devil would come and kill mr punch and that was the end of the that was it was a morality play about how if you were a piece of shit you would be judged by the devil accordingly
0: yeah it was always a hilarious thing about a guy beating his wife right
1: yeah, and baby, usually now that's not what my dad did. My dad took this art form and did like a like Mr. Punch is like a vaudevillian who's out of work, and he used reused the character, so he he didn't embrace that aspect of it. But I wonder if that's why he was so attached to this movie. But what's this? The point is here is that Napoleon loves it because these these are small people smaller than him beating the crap out of each other
0: yeah um i didn't notice that uh but uh isn't it isn't the f- idea that napoleon was short a myth i didn't think it was a myth
1: i mean they say he's five foot one ah. which i think in our in our in our we wouldn't consider short
0: well uh, now i i could be completely wrong about this but um what i'd heard was that he's called five foot one but that um the units of measurement being used at that time are not the same as what we use, so the f- the five foot one that he was recorded as then translates into being five foot seven for us.
1: Oh, well, I mean, I just know that Michael Palin coped to writing all the jokes about other world leaders that were short, and then in the in the interview that I watched on the d v d he's like, yeah I made all that up like I don't know if any of that is correct so like that whole sequence where he's where Napoleon is seething or quoting other famous famously short people like Alexander the Great being four foot nine yeah I don't think that's right no that was all just a joke Uh, so it's it's totally possible I mean he doesn't I've been at the Boston Museum of Fine Art a few times recently and the painting makes the horse look pretty fucking big
0: Oh, so if he wasn't, one.
1: if he was in real life five foot seven, he's certainly not to scale in the painting.
0: Uh, speaking of paintings, uh, and you're talking about the famous David painting of him, like you know, raising his arm and going across the yep. mountains. Yeah. Um, speaking... I've seen
1: that painting in person. I have considered reaching out and touching it, but I haven't.
0: Well, you are both cultured and uh, a good art patron for not uh, wrecking a priceless piece of artwork. But I was going to say.
1: It was more the COVID-19. I yeah. didn't care about the artwork. Yeah,
0: you don't want to inf- infect the paint. But um, there's a, a few shots during this that uh, I think bear some visual similarity to and maybe were inspired by a pretty famous Goya painting called uh, trace de Mayo, which maybe you've seen. It's um, pretty stark, but it's, it's a man in this very... Uh, blazingly white shirt with his arms outstretched in front of a French firing squad. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a few shots in this of the French firing squads that look quite similar to that.
1: Yeah. It's, it's this. also, it's a very dark, like the joke is that the war is still going on. The battle is still raging. The French are slaughtering people, but Napoleon won't end it because he can't be bothered to stop Because he's watching this variety show.
0: Yeah. And this is kind of part of the thing for me where I'm like, again, who is this movie made for? Because that is a dark and violent joke to make for children and also a little sophisticated for children. Like, I don't know if they would find that if kids would find that particularly funny.
1: Yeah, and so the time bandits are there with now they've acquired Kevin. Their plan is to steal whatever's around. Like they don't have much of a plan. They're just going to no. rob. They just want whatever.
0: Yeah, so I was they, curious about that too because like what uh, it seemed like they wanted to do a time heist. I was right about that. It is a time heist. Uh, <laughs> your
1: prediction your prediction was correct. Yeah. It's a time heist. But um
0: it's uh, but but then I was like so they're stealing from Napoleon but they're not stealing anything in particular they're just like let's grab all his stuff and so then I was like well in that case why are you stealing from him like why if you're I thought if you're gonna go after Napoleon in this time surely they must have had something in mind like oh the the famous like you know uh carved vase that he acquired when he invaded this Italian city we're after, but no, it was just like let's grab all the you know, all the gold and all the jewels and famous paintings, you know, the Mona Lisa's here, let's just grab everything and go. And I was like, well then why go here? This is an insanely dangerous spot. You could go anywhere and steal anything much more safely.
1: So I if think you have nothing in com- mind. The logic of the movie that I will try to defend here is that they have the map. So the conceit is they have a map that tells them where the fabric rips in in history are. So if you go into the right closet in one place, you end up in a different time period. So I don't think they had the the choice over where they landed. They don't have the choice on
0: where they land, but they have the choice on where they act. So it's like if we can only, you know... They could pass well, through they, the war and then go steal when they wind up somewhere where it's easy.
1: But they're on the lamb from the Supreme Being, which pushes them into the bedroom of this child in in modern times eighty one and then or seventy nine. Okay. And then they're like, "Where's the nearest time escape?" It's through that wall. They don't have a choice over the fact that that drops them in, you know, Napoleonic wartime. Okay. Which I can't can't okay. even venture a century gets at was that sixteen, Napoleonic something? Wars uh, yeah
0: like the late 1700s to the early 1800s
1: okay so regardless Napoleon is enjoying this puppet show and the puppeteer gets shot one of again the more gallows humor moments of what is a children's supposed to be a children's movie and he's very disturbed by this and this is what Dave I don't you probably didn't pick this up. No offense, but then the MC comes out and he previews a bunch more programming alternatives to the puppet show. That is Charles McEwen, who co-wrote Brazil with Terry Gilliam and plays the "Computers Are My Specialty" guy ah, in Brazil. Ah, cool. I was like, I feel like that's him under all that pancake makeup, and I and I feverishly rushed to verify it. So it's it is him.
0: There was a um, I, I had a writing note. I, I wanted to give during all these scenes, which is that, uh, the time bandits keep looking at the map and they keep saying, um, where are we? And I was like, dude, when are we? Oh yeah. Absolutely fair. That should have been the line. Um, so basically they
1: impressed Napoleon. The, the time bandits do a show. Everyone thinks they're doomed for failure, but he loves them. He promotes them all to be their His generals, because he's, just annoyed by his taller generals that keep bothering him uh one of the stranger plots uh they all have an extravagant dinner where napoleon falls asleep boasting about his height compared to other famous leaders and the time bandits rip him off they they fill they grab all the spoils of the war that are available uh fold them into the drapes and drag them off
0: yeah and then we wind up in uh, our, our next time period.
1: And then and then they fall through a door, and they are in medieval England, where we meet um, uh,
0: Shelley Duvall,
1: Shelley Duvall, and Michael Palin, who wrote himself. Uh, into that part because they gave the the part he wanted to play to John Cleese
0: and this is a part where the fact that you said it was written on the fly that really comes through here because these two feel like they the way they are acting this this heightened jokey like over-the-top acting style that they have it just it feels like they are in a completely different movie
1: yeah, uh, pa- was it Lady Pawnee and oh, I mean they're like they Pansy. show up again. Her name Pansy, is Pansy. Pansy, yes. I
0: I never remembered his name. She also she looks kind of like a young Olivia Coleman. Did you notice that? Oh yeah, I mean Shelly Duvall
1: at this time also was probably a huge get. Oh, she was great in like, this too. And uh, all right, I have the castles like her. here. So so she was Pansy and he was Vincent. And I assume that was their names in both uh iterations of their characters. It was,
0: yes. Um,
1: so yeah, they're in a carriage. The time bandits like
0: it was crash weird, but in. Yeah, she was good though. I liked her. Um So did you know th- this they're they're talking yeah. around him having some kind of sexual problem and I thought it was like a leakage problem, but yes. Oh, I don't know. Well, cause they keep um they keep talking about uh the problem. The yeah. problem. Yeah, and he's like, "Will you marry me, even though
1: I have the problem? Even though the problem is solved?" Well,
0: she's like, she says very strongly, "You came for me," and he's like, "Yes, all the way from Nutting," and I was maybe Nutting was not slang for that yet, but I was kind of like, "Jesus Christ!" Yeah, <laughs> no,
1: there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the time bandits has crashed through their uh their horse and carriage. Yes. And they have all their treasure. They're very happy. But then they run afoul of some other bandits.
0: They do. Um, In this part, though, when they come through the other bandit camp, I sort of started thinking stylistically that a bit of maybe what I think is kind of a problem with this movie in its desire to be aimed at kids, I think is that um for as fantastical as it is uh the the movie despite being fantastical feels it weirdly lacks a sense of whimsy like it's not very light or, or and it, it, it's also also kind of like it's very it feels very like rock solid all the way through there there, there's no kind of like dreamlike or magical quality to a lot of it it all feels very i don't know if i'm describing it well but it feels very um just, just too solid throughout i don't it's know if really, that makes sense but um, it's very
1: harsh there's there it's very harsh so like the this i think the bandits are a great example where Um, the time bandits and Kevin go traipsing through the woods and they accidentally get snared in like leg traps. So they're all dangling upside down. These bandits appear and are like, her, we're, we're bandits. They're like, Hey, we're also bandits. It's fine. And so they cut them down. But then the opening shot of the bandit camp that they are taking them to a guy, is arm-muscling with someone else, and he rips the other guy's arm off and then throws it into a pile but it, of ripped-off arms, it which is, like, it's not gruesome, but it's, like, that's not kid humor. Like, that's not funny. I think kids... I mean, maybe kids would find that funny because of no, the I, violence? I think, no, I
0: think they could totally like that's find like that a very, funny. Th- that's, but like, that, a very
1: adult. Like, it's very adult. Like, it's, like, the arm... It's not just the arm goes off, it's like the arm goes off and then it's thrown into a pile of other severed arms that's sort of like grimly dark but uh,
0: no maybe i I, adult. I think kids would find that funny i I actually thought that was one of the lighter moments of this whole scene um interesting, but it's 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 less that, and it's more like visually it's not, it's very um it's visually harsh it visually like i right. th- there could have been more some kind of like filter on this that gave it like a bit of more of a sepia quality. I, I don't know. Like if you look at like they're in the forest and if you look at the way it looks in this versus say a scene in the forest looks in Lord of the Rings or something like that, there's, I don't know, maybe some kind of like camera filter they're using in that one to give it a bit more. It There's a magical visual quality to it that this movie lacks. Mm-hmm. Also, um, this movie, for a lot of it, doesn't have a lot of music running underneath it.
1: No, that's and and I will say that both of those comments. I think one, this shows how naive, how uh, amateur Terry Gilliam was. Like he had the ability to create sets and costumes and have actors in the right places and locations, but he didn't know how to film them well. Yeah, because that's. That's a quality that in Brazil. I said to Robin, I was like, "It's interesting because watching this against Brazil, which was only three years later, Brazil still looks has a certain quality to it." But Brazil's also even supposed to be
0: kind of ostensibly a real world, whereas this is kind of supposed to be like a magical world.
1: But then you get advanced to like Twelve Monkeys, which is a you know as non real world as it gets, and it all no, but looks, that's also it all,
0: it's sort of a real world. Like I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like the, the, the grittiness works okay in 12 Monkeys whereas in this one it it could have looked I don't know just somehow a little more cartoony
1: I just don't think he knew how to work the cameras that well
0: yeah and and also I mean he could have used a John Williams to like yes. underline well everything
1: that was that was the thing is that they wanted George Harrison to score the movie but George Harrison scoring the movie meant George Harrison song like pop songs like breaking up scenes and him and Michael Palin were like yeah we don't have room to put tis isn't it a isn't it a pity in between these two scenes or behind a scene or anything so that's why there's one song associated with the movie by George Harrison and it plays over the credits, and the whole movie is just sort of like warbling like wo yeah like which I think is because there were there was a disagreement between them and the producer and like if George Harrison knew how to, maybe they should have just said, yeah, he can score it. And maybe it should have been like George Harrison's centaur but behind everything, maybe. but well, anyway. it doesn't have a musical. It lacks a musical element and quality. And I agree. And I, and that, that is, I think the driving um, reason. So, but wait, to not gloss over this Robin hood scene. So they meet Robin hood, the bandit camp. That's a big reveal. And this is one of the, uh, again, one of the sequences where it's like, who is this for? Robin Hood comes out, and he's John Cleese, and he is just terribly bureaucratic. All his band has been portrayed as terrible, thieving, like, rip people to the gristle goons.
0: But then Robin Hood is a, uh, how are you, old spot? Good? Yeah, it didn't make any sense. You know, like the whole, the scene felt completely schizophrenic and so did the character. Like he, so the, the band is gritty and violent rape and pillage kind of bandits, but then we meet Robin Hood, who's the, you know, green tights, feather in the cap, Errol Flynn, Robin Hood. Classic,
1: classic walked out of a. Walked out of an Errol Flynn movie Robin Hood.
0: And he's really nice. Like, he's very friendly and soft and nice to everybody. But then he also takes all of their shit. He's like, okay, well, now I'm also, I, you know, you guys are robbers? Oh, well, that's great. We're robbers, and we are robbing you. And it's like, oh. But then he also, like, distributes it to the poor. But he doesn't really seem like... He doesn't come across as, like, particularly interested in doing that. It's more just kind of like, oh, yep, that's what we do. We're going to give it to the poor. And then, like, his guy is, like, punching all of them when they give it out, which is funny. But, like.
1: It was one of the things that, was, as a child, I remember being very tickled by. And as an adult, I was like, I can't really quite figure this out. But I do still think it's, like, I think it's, like, the one of the things where they were still clearly like writing a, it on the day. They, well, they're very much like a sketch group. Like this is a sketch, right? The sketch is that Robin Hood is a lot more sophisticated than his band. I don't know. And if that's, I, I couldn't pin down the game of this sketch. And the, I thought that, yeah, well, no, that's fair, which is why the, it doesn't land that well, because it would be one thing if, The bandits and the gang were all of the same type of personality but there are two different things these are time traveling bandits and these are like abject thugs and like why Robin Hood exists at all in this manner is is questionable but there is something about John Cleese's like I mean I do I did really enjoy I did I, I was more confused by it on this viewing but in previous viewings I remember being like just so I just thought it was so funny that he was just such a stuck up, like, oh, so you're robbers, are you? We are as well. Well, they'll enjoy it because it's that one joke. I think it is that one joke where a scene is carried by one really good joke where he's like, well, they're the poor. They don't have much, but I guess that's what makes them the poor. Mm. And, like, I don't, I don't know. It's just, it's like, maybe it's a social commentary that we're not parsing out about how we're super smarmy about our modern age uh, generosity and that he was a piece of shit like we are now I, I it might not be that deep it might just be that john cleese thought it would be funny to do that voice like it's really hard to say but either way It's a scene in the movie, yeah, and it is it is is John Cleese's one scene in the movie, and you are correct that he is first build.
0: Yep, and so pretty much five minutes later, top build John Cleese is out of the film. But we do meet our villain, who's this guy, the evil one, played by David Warner, and. so there, there's a particular visual aesthetic to all of the evil one scenes and um, I'm probably going to break your heart with this one Josh but unfortunately the strongest vibe I got from a visual aesthetic point from all of these scenes and also maybe a little bit just from the, the tone and acting and lines it really reminded me of Dune.
1: It reminded me so much of Dune. It reminded me so much of David Lynch's Dune. Yeah. And you
0: know what? That
1: is a dig at David Lynch because this is three years before that happened. Mm. All of the evil characters, every single moment of their scenes, I was like, this really just feels like the the bad guys from Dune.
0: Yeah, It, it it's strong vibes like that. But anyway, I, mean, I
1: thought David, David Warner really carries it, especially because he's a character that's introduced very deep into the movie. So you've already um, had a lot of time with the Time Bandits and Kevin and the various historical figures. It's like 40 minutes in. Here's the villain. Yeah. And he choose the scenery. I mean, I thought this part I was like, I, I think part of the reason that I lobbied for this that we went over in part one was it's clear that this aesthetic went into other movies and the evil, everything about their environment, everything they're wearing when in appears to have gone to Brazil and 12 monkeys for sure. And even Robin. Uh, so I watched it with my girlfriend who's not on the pod. She was like, they look like Skeksis. And I was like, yeah, they do a little bit. And there's a, an interesting thing where, Brian Froud, who d- designed Labyrinth and a lot of the fantasy stuff for Jim Henson, uh, Terry Gilliam admits to stealing the moment later in the movie where a giant walks out of the ocean with the ship on his head. He was like, that was a Brian Froud drawing that I just thought was cool and maybe made sense at this point in the plot. So I ripped it off for Brian Froud. But at the same time, the Hensons seem to have gotten a little bit of the Skeksis vibe from the evil, from his headpiece and his, like, purple robes. I mean, he looks like a Skeksis, but with a human face. I'm just saying. That's all I'm saying. Mm. And this movie predates uh, Dark Crystal. But anyway, yeah, we're introduced to evil, and evil's like, guess what? I'm evil. I'm the antithesis of God. I am going to get this goddamn map and you know how I'm going to get it? I'm going to make the Time Bandits come and give it to me. So he uh, blows up a couple of his servants and transports into one of the Time Bandits' minds. I think it's Fidget, Kenny Baker. And he has them say out loud, I know where the greatest place on the map is. And then they are all like, all right, we'll go there. But it doesn't exactly work out that way.
0: No, and the kid winds up separated from them in a different time where he meets uh, a young, virile Sean Connery. Ooh la la. I don't, know.
1: I don't know if it's a different time. I think it may be same time, different places.
0: Oh, no. They were in the Middle Ages, and then he's transported back to, like, you know, like, he, the, Sean Connery's like a Spartan.
1: No, but what ha- yes, you're correct, but what happens is two portals open and Kenny picks one, or Kevin picks one.
0: Yeah, and he winds up uh, observing a battle between a Spartan warrior and a uh, guy wearing a, basically wearing a helmet to make him look like a minotaur.
1: As a child, I thought that the intention was he was fighting a minotaur. Okay, as an adult, I realize he's clearly wearing what is supposed to be a minotaur's head, but the uh yeah, somehow Kevin saves the day not by landing on the Minotaur but by landing on agamemnon uh, Agamemnon uh and that distracts the Minotaur, which allows Agamemnon to knife him like whip a knife at him,
0: yeah. And so uh, that uh, endears him to Agamemnon, who brings him back to his city. This all looked really who we, good.
1: Who we find out is Sean Connery. So this is Sean yes. Connery's big turn.
0: Yes, yes. Um,
1: so Sean's like we like Sean Connery. I mean, it was Sean Connery at the peak of Sean Connery. In his like, he had done Bond. He'd been Bonded. Like, get, yeah, he was a huge get. Yeah, and he's young and hot in this. And the reason he did the movie is because he was apparently a golfing buddy of their manager, Dennis O'Brien. He really liked Monty Python. And I kid you not, Gilliam and Palin have both said that they wrote in the script that it was a Sean Connery or more budgetly conscious version of Sean Connery. And they offered to, because of their manager's connection, they offered to Sean Connery directly, and he said okay. But they only had him for two hours. or Sorry, not two hours, two
0: days. Hmm. Well, you know, these scenes are all right. Uh, They look great. I mean, where the hell do they shoot him? In, like, Syria? It
1: really does feel like prototypical Game of Thrones.
0: Yeah. Like,
1: there was a lot of this that I thought, oh, man, Weiss, the Weiss brothers, or whoever, those guys must Benioff love. and Weiss. Yeah, well, you yeah, know, it, like... it,
0: it had the look of the Marine scenes, especially like those masked soldiers in the city. Had you know, the they have that um, uh, the 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 Miranese uh, assholes kind of looked like that. Um, but so Sean Connery likes the kid. He teaches the kid a little a little sleight of hand magic, and then makes him which
1: that that was apparently all Sean Connery. Oh. Apparently, he knew how to do that trick and was like, I want to do this. And Terry Gilliam was like, sure. Yeah, great. We'll film it. We'll see if it works. And it made it into the movie.
0: It's it's okay. But then he makes the kid heir to the throne. Oh, yeah. So Now, he's mad stoked. Would you be willing to stay in the past if you were going to be heir to the throne of a city-state?
1: Yeah, I think if I I would have been quite upset if the Time Bandits had whisked me away. Mm.
0: Yeah, I don't know, though. I mean, they don't have toilets or vaccines. But anyway, um, there's kind of a weird suggested subplot in here with the queen of the city where, like, they yes. keep, like, zoom. she looks like a villain, and they keep zooming in on her like, oh, th- this lady's going to be trouble. And then, and she has nothing. a she has a
1: prime she has a prime minister like esque henchman who looks like Jonathan Price but is not Jonathan Price. Believe me, I checked. And and, and there's a line nothing.
0: too where Sean Connery is like, "You you tell her that I'm running this city, you know." And it's like, "Oh, there's there's pro there are power struggles going on there, you know." But nothing so, ever comes of it. All
1: I can say that I know from my deeper dive on the DVD extras is that there was more to this plot and there was more comical elements that they stripped out because Sean Connery was not a fan of them and they felt that he was right. So there was at least more visual gags and jokes and they felt ultimately that it worked as a more straight dramatic part of portion of the movie but whether those jokes involved some of those things i don't i don't know i don't know what like but i really got the sense that yeah there was a plot to usurp the throne or something and i mean i guess the time bandits show up and do it before
0: yeah so the the time bandits arrive and right after the kid has been made in in excellent in excellent form by the way oh yeah yeah it's 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 They're basically their only competent scene where they arrive and uh, take him away. But he's pissed off because, you know, he'd just been made heir to the throne of a little empire. And now he's on the goddamn Titanic.
1: Well, you're glossing over the fact that they they like show up and do a dance where they're uh, warriors on top of horses. And then the and you assume it's like one person in a in a large costume but then the warriors all jump off the horse, and you're like, and you know, you're like, oh yeah, that's the time bandits.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but yes, they end up on a ship, which you don't know at the time, but is quite obviously the Titanic.
0: Yeah, and, you, and they're
1: all first class, by the way, which is a little bit weird because they've lost all of their treasure.
0: They just stole it all from the king.
1: Oh, I guess, yeah, yeah. presumably.
0: Um, we meet, we run into a uh, pansy and Vincent again who I guess yes. exists in all times.
1: Yes, and the Time Bandits ruined their courtship and also exposed the fact that Vincent is bald and wearing a toupee.
0: Yeah, they ruined their courtship again. This scene, I, I mentioned it earlier, where um, some of the acting was too flat in other scenes. This is the one I was talking about, where um, Randall here, the leader of the Time Bandits, gets the scene where he's talking to Kevin about what his plans are, and so Kevin's still moping because he's angry that they took him away from this cool Spartan king who he was pretty attached to and liked a lot, but, uh, you know, Randall's like, oh, we got a plan to go steal the most valuable object in the entire universe, and there's kind of been a suggestion throughout that randall's like a little greedier and more power hungry than the rest of them but it's not fleshed out a lot but in this scene he gets this kind of little not speech but like a few lines in a row where i think the idea is that like these these greedy qualities are getting the best of him where he's like Fidget told me about the most valuable thing in the universe. It's in the fortress of ultimate darkness. See, and then he he launches into why he wants to do it, and he's like, "We risk all, we win everything." Waiter, bring me more champagne. And I'm like, okay, those are cool lines, but they were delivered just like that, like very. Th- there's a certain amount of intensity to it but they're quiet. And I was kind of like, this is sort of his, um, you know, his big kind of hubris moment. I feel like he could have like gone more over the top with it. He was like, this is it boys. Or, you know, this is it, Kevin. This is what it's all about. We risk all, we win everything. Wait, uh, more champagne, you know, like he, but instead it's delivered very quiet. And I was kind of like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's weak.
1: No, you're right, like, I mean, their motivation in general doesn't, it doesn't, it's very like, why are they doing what they're doing, and why are they not being more calculated
0: about it? Well, But it's but not it's even, also
1: like, a fa- it's a fantasy movie that's like, I guess I'm too smart for my own good, and I don't need to answer that.
0: No, but it's not even that, like, I didn't need an explanation like that, it was more that, like, Randall's, his passion doesn't feel very strong, because... You know, he, he. a little bit later, there's kind of like a little mutiny against him as the ostensible leader of the group, and I'm kind of thinking, like, why? Like, I haven't seen anything amongst you guys that shows any... It, it doesn't show anyone to be any more virtuous or any less greedy. Like, there's there's very little to suggest that, like, there's any reason to have this mutiny against Randall. It's more just kind of like, I think... It's supposed to be something like this scene where we're supposed to get the idea that he's being corrupted by this quest, and he's he's getting too greedy and too all caught up in all of it, and it's making him into yeah. a tyrant. And um, you know, well, the, I think the the thing is that we but we know, never get that it's it's not strong we, enough. We
1: we know that they are headed towards evil, and that that is not where they should be going.
0: Well, they should know it, too. Why are you trying to go steal something from a place called the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness or whatever the fuck it's called? Don't go there. Yeah, I mean, obviously. We're going to go to the Time of Legends, to the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness. Okay. And they aren't even really
1: trying to go to to the Time of Legends. They just get shipwrecked and evil is like, oh, good, they're in the water. And he literally pulls them into a vacuum that drops them into the time of legends in one of the most, in one of the sort of interesting, but hokeyest sequences of the movie where we see them like falling through water and falling into more water. I don't know how you felt about that. Well, Um, whatever there is. There's a funny thing where they're all, they're all, you know, 17 years before the actual Titanic movie or 18 years before the actual Titanic movie where they're all huddled around a a piece of the Titanic in a very much like never let go situation. There's room on Um, that
0: table for everyone.
1: But, uh, they eventually, yes, they fall. Evil lets us know that they have fallen into the time of legends, which is like not even really worth digesting that much. There's an overly long scene where they land on a boat run by an ogre who has a wife uh, played by Catherine Hellman, who is just apparently a large normal person.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, I think the only real significance of this is that this is where we get the ship from the poster. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Which is not a ship that they travel through time and it's just a ship they happen to land on.
0: And then also they're like carried, as you mentioned on the head of a giant, which is like, okay, I guess like they're
1: Yeah. So they, they kick the ogres off the ship Take it over, but then they get uh, they run aground on on to what they think is land or a sandbar, but it is the head of a giant. Yeah, they eventually put the giant to sleep. And then they are in some kind of desert covered in shells. And this leads to one of my favorite practical effects of the movie, even though at this point, even I was a little bit like God damn it movie. Why can't you be an hour and a half? where they hit an invisible wall.
0: Yeah, and then they also and this is where that kind of like somewhat unmotivated mutiny happens, but they wind up smashing through the invisible wall. And you know, it it looked cool enough. Sure. I think it looked I
1: think it looked pretty dope. I mean, I I also thought like this just looks okay, but I'm surprised more modern people, more modern filmmakers don't do this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it it, it it was it was pretty good. And the actual look of the fortress itself was very good. It has strong baradour themes or uh, vibes.
1: And so, the, yeah, and then we get a nice little uh, reprise of Jim Broadbent's character from your, uh, was it your money or your life? <laughs> yeah. Whatever the TV show is uh, where he is, uh, he is like enticing them across a labyrinth. Don't go. It's a trap. And he also has Kevin's parents backing him up. Now, Mom.
0: I love Dad. Oh, no.
1: Yeah, turns out they hand the map over to Jim Broadbent, who is actually evil. Bum, bum, bum. They all get trapped in a cage. Now Man, time has bandage...
0: the map. Time bandits, you be fucking up. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they... Manage to make good use of those polaroids that uh, kevin's been taking all this time because he has a, a photograph of the map in there and that helps them figure out a plan for escape but they realize that before they escape they have to get that map back because uh, the evil one is gonna destroy everything and that he's gonna destroy the entire world if they don't get it back and that's where they live it's also kind of funny
1: because he doesn't want to destroy it. He wants to technolize it. He's like, I'm going to bring balance to the world by bringing SIM cards and microchips. He doesn't say SIM cards. it's That would be too prescient. But he does say microchips and processing systems. Like, he's all about, for some reason, his whole beef is technology. There isn't enough of it. Which is, you know, maybe it's one of those things where it's like they stumbled into it. But that is, that is maybe what has actually
0: happened yeah but uh they get the map back and they're chased through the whole castle and he eventually they decide uh kevin decides that they're going to split up kevin will lead him away and the uh the rest of the time bandits will go get help uh yes i I feel like it might have been wiser to lead the evil one away and um give the map to the time bandits to escape with and not lead him away and have the map so that when you're caught all is lost but you know that's the decision that Kevin made Um, (laughs) and he is a child right? a child actor mind you the creatures that the evil ones summoned were pretty scary and cool looking I guess
1: yeah there's a lot of good SFX in this in this sequence I think Uh,
0: Uh, we'll get to that in a second but um (laughs) It, oh, no. In this, oh, no. So th- we get to this final confrontation where, uh, first of all, some more bad acting from the kid where he's like, don't come any closer or I'll burn the map. Just as he's about to be killed, blown up or like converted into some horrible abomination by the evil one. The time bandits arrive with all these like reinforcements from throughout history. Right. So you get like knights yeah and archers and a tank from World War II and a spaceship from the future, like all this stuff. And I was kind of like, that's cool and it's a rousing moment, but um, it might have been cooler if the people you brought in related back to the adventures you'd had along the way. Well, it's
1: interesting you say that, Dave, because in the script... The plan was for Agamemnon to come back, right? So all the archers that showed up were he was supposed to be leading him, they and it wasn't.
0: Like, yeah, they looked like Spartan warriors.
1: And Fidget was not supposed to die. It was supposed to be Agamemnon. Mm-hmm. Now I don't think that makes a lot of sense because they didn't bring Napoleon back, and they didn't shoot it that way because they didn't have Sean Connery. Like that was literally, oh, we can't get Sean for this scene. What if we rewrote it that Fidget is the one that dies? Evil defeats everybody, and he causes a column to crush Fidget. Yeah, now
0: during this battle scene, there is some cool stuff, but uh, I do think that to a certain extent, we, much like a lot of people, tend to uh, tout the virtues of practical effects as opposed to digital effects, but I think this battle scene... Really does kind of show you the limits of practical.
1: Like it skates, it skates the line. I don't think it's great, but I think it's very competent. Sure. But yes, it's very obvious when David Warner is going from himself to a model, and, or himself to like you know and latex. A
0: lot of stuff is sort of like hidden, and you know, there are striking images, but uh, it is not a very exciting scene. Also, there no,
1: and some of it doesn't make any goddamn sense. Like it's like, oh, they're gonna shoot arrows at him, so he's gonna become a pin cushion and then puff himself up to the point where the arrow. I mean, some of it is just too conceptually.
0: I don't think it would work if it was CGI or practical. There's also a line um, that I think maybe should have been cut, which is th- there's some cowboys that join them. And when they're about to rise, they say, let's lynch him. They said, (laughs) they say like, like let's lynch this (laughs) bad Guess we'll have a lynching. Yeah. Is what they say. And I was like, holy shit.
1: For our, yes. I mean, we do that association is true. Now I think in 80, you would still associate that. I don't know if you'd be able to differentiate. I mean, I'm, I, I hear what you're saying. And it is a regrettable line, but it was a cowboy thing. They hung people. They hung people like who committed crimes like petty theft.
0: Yeah, just, the, you know, the line has associations and they, and where I don't they, think they, that they, it would they, make it they in, also in nowadays. No,
1: they, well, you wouldn't. And I, I don't think you would go out of your way to say it. And I'm not going out of my way. Like, it's not a good line. But like it's one of the things that it makes it a forty-year-old movie is like that was still something that I mean the Oxbow incident is a book that I was quite a like I've read yeah uh, so. I think it's quite powerful good movie anyway, too we should do it for the pod as you like to say mm. uh the, what I was trying to say about Agamemnon is that so they rewrote the scene so that Kenny Baker would be the one that was crushed by the column. And that and that they said added a new dynamic to Wally's character, who was played by Jack Purvis, because in real life Kenny Baker and Jack Purvis were a comedy duo outside of film.
0: Yeah, it's the end of the movie though; it's too little, too late.
1: I mean, I really liked that as a development, but yes.
0: Uh, so um, they're about so the the battle fails. David Warner kicks the shit out of everybody. He kills everyone and they're they're The time bandits and Kevin are themselves the only ones who are left minus uh, Kenny Baker, who's already dead. And they're about and to.
1: And so Wally is like, I, they're, they're all trying to hold Wally back, but because his buddy fidget has died, he is like charging it evil, even though at this point it's completely fut- futile.
0: Yeah. And um, this is where the day is saved By a literal deus ex machina. Yes, the supreme being. And that's kind of lame. Yeah, it's
1: not the most satisfying thing. Uh, God, who's played by Ralph Richardson, shows up and basically says, yeah, this was my plan the entire time. Isn't it a great job how I made evil? Isn't evil so cool? because i made him and so now he's you know and we tested him and the test is over
0: yeah there there was a good line here where someone says like you let all these people die just to test your creation and it's like yeah that's a that's a pretty good dig at god and religion i guess <laughs> oh and also when they're cleaning up the the remains of uh david warner uh he tosses it uh D- don't lose that stuff that is concentrated evil
1: yeah, so there's a, there's a interesting thing. So again, in terms of how they made this movie, they gave Ralph Richardson... So he was an English actor who was like a contemporary of Gilgold and Olivier, and he was all over the British stage in the early 19th century. Uh, he was like... He passed away about four years after this movie was made. So he was a little bit like a legend, uh, and getting him to play God for them was a, a big deal but because it was such a big deal they gave him a lot of leeway and so he read the script and was really obsessed with the uh time banter that gets turned into a pig og he was like the pig should eat some of evil and Terry Gilliam was like yeah sure whatever you say Ralph Richardson he's like yeah I don't know make that happen somehow maybe evil should explode so on set They weren't intending to, but they had that, like, black charcoal stalactite version of David Warner, which is, like, evil calcified. They weren't planning on blowing that up, but they did it because Ralph Richardson insisted they needed a subplot where the pig ate some of him.
0: But that's not in the movie.
1: They never—they couldn't get the shot— because the animal trainer was like they couldn't get the pig to actually eat the thing after they exploded it already so they that's why part of his sequence is returning that person to a time bandit human because they had no other they were like all right well we have to stitch this together somehow so he turns him back to normal Mm. so that's how they got that um the other funny thing i'll say is that uh he has like that this isn't really an anecdote But I love that Kevin asks, "Why does there have to be evil at all?" And he goes, he like, he sort of like walks off screen and comes back and is like, "I don't know, something about free will." Yeah, it's just a a very funny like he's I don't know like again one of these things as an adult I was like, man, this could be a stronger scene, and as a kid I was like, wow, it's so funny and goofy. God doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, but they vacuum up all the evil almost they collect all of it. it and the time bandits are like yeah we're going back to work <laughs> this is, didn't work out they almost immediately just give up their bandit lives uh yes and they clean up almost all of evil but what happens kevin wakes up in bed back in his bedroom and he gets rescued by firefighters because their house is on fire
0: yeah and the firefighter is uh, sh- uh, reprising Sean Connery.
1: Again, I've read and seen Terry Gilliam talk about how this was Sean Connery's idea.
0: Well, we've already seen Pansy and Vincent existing throughout all of history, so you know, sure. But um, his house burns down, and then it turns out there's a piece of evil in the uh the the cooker that caused the fire in the
1: in the microwave yeah that's what caused it all
0: and and his parents start reaching for it and the kid tries to stop them he's like no don't touch it
1: they immediately touch it and they They touch it without hesitation they blow
0: up and then that's the end of the movie so the movie ends with his house burns down his parents blow up he is an orphan the end Yep. Okay. Yep.
1: That's time bandits, baby.
0: All right. I mean, I mean that's it. it. It's, that's... it's funny in how dark it is. But uh again, yeah. ostensibly a kid's movie? I mean,
1: Terry Gilliam had this brag that he took all the comment cards from the screenings and everyone said they liked the ending, but none of the comment cards were positive. So they all said they liked the ending sarcastically huh. like and he and then the producer uh, Dennis O'Brien was like I don't like the ending where the parents blow up and Terry Gilliam was like haven't you looked at all these comic cards it's the only thing that people like about the movie and he was like I guess you're right Terry like this is like I don't know he uh, t- Gilliam is maybe maybe he was a piece of shit to work with Maybe it was really impossible. He doesn't sound that great. Like from his own admission, he had to trick his own producer into letting him keep the ending of his movie. It just, it just explains Brazil uh, so much more. He's like, I know, I know more about what I'm doing than you do, Mm. but I don't know. Time bandits, Dave, we're at the, we're at that point. I didn't pull out any critical reviews of this. I, I don't know how people thought of it.
0: That's okay. Um, I, you know, it's like I said at the top. I I thought it was an interesting film. I think if you're into Terry Gilliam, it's uh, an intriguing look at, like, the origins of his style. And there's certainly stuff to recommend about the film. Like, uh, you know, I do not think this is a bad movie, but I do think it's a messy film, and it is a flawed film and it's it's it doesn't really it's it's ambitious and it's got some cool stuff in it but i don't think in the end it really worked for me so kind of a an intriguing almost good movie
1: you want to say never is what you want to say but you don't want to hurt my feelings
0: oh no i'm i'm fully fully fine with hurting your feelings i was uh just um you know establishing the foundation of it but yes this movie is a never uh i don't think that you have to see this movie at all no there's there's no reason why anyone needs to view this as an essential film
1: well i think i am chagrined and i'm gonna eat my hat or multiple hats and say i agree with you hmm I really enjoyed it. I think the thing about it for me was that it is, to, it is a kids' movie. I think it's like the coolest kids' movie that probably has ever been made. Really, and I would show, I would show it again, but probably not to adults, and probably not too excitedly. And I do think there's a weird thing here where I haven't seen the Baron Munchausen. So maybe we should do that one while we're both in COVID-19 state because that's the missing piece of the... Terry Gilliam always said Time Bandits, Brazil, and Munchausen were like a cycle. They were like three movies that were all supposed to be thematically connected. I have a harder time seeing
0: how Brazil fits into that, but this does fit very nicely with Munchausen, certainly.
1: I, I was gonna like I've said before about Terry's movies. I've I've like largely crouched my or couched my recommendation of them. I don't think everyone is of the mind to appreciate them. So I guess I agree that this would be a never. I do think that the it is the type of movie that if you saw it and you appreciate it. Then it is like your Dune. And I do mean when I, that. I mean, David Lynch's Dune. You'll be one of those people where you bring it up at parties and you tell people there's a great movie they've never seen. So if you, if you've already told everyone about Dune and you need another movie, then definitely time bandits.
0: Yeah. They, they, it's, it they certainly go together a little bit.
1: I would say this is less, the less messy of the two.
0: It's it's a better the... I mean I I didn't want to claw my fucking eyes out while I was watching this movie so it's definitely the better of the two movies but um th- there are, there are a lot of similarities
1: Now here's an interesting thing about it Uh it has been touted as a like there've been many attempts at a either a sequel or a reboot And I will tell you this.
0: This is a rich, rich vein for rebooting. Like, there's a lot of good ideas in here. I just think the execution wasn't there. Yeah. This is a property that is ripe
1: for remaking. And as most recently as 2018, it was uh, written and a pilot was ordered uh, that had Terry Gilliam's blessing. It was going to be a miniseries or a TV series, and it was going to be directed by... Taika Waititi. Yeah, I like it. Yes, I don't know. I mean, I assume they made it and it was not picked up. I mean, that's something I probably should have done more research on as the surrogate host. But um, yeah, those names, that feels right. It yeah. feels very right. And I want to go back to this point that we maybe did get in earlier, but there was an element where, I mean, there is an element where we don't do movies that feature little person actors. I mean, outside of Warwick Davis, out, like who get to be themselves. And that's an element of it that is, you know, it is a good thing to have this property exist. I understand what you're it saying. It gets remade. It's a great platform for small actors. Yeah, I, I understand and what you're and saying. They, and, and they exist and they are good at acting and there's no reason why they shouldn't be in other movies as well. But like, this is one that doesn't make that their defining feature. Yeah. Anyway, I'm saying Time Bandit's reboot Dinklage's Randall. Obviously. You got you got it. Obviously.
0: Um all right, so anything you want to plug? Oh, uh, yes, I have my pl- I have my production of a stage adaptation of Albert Camus The Plague that's going to be uh going down at the uh the ART Next week, uh, I think it's really good timing for it.
1: Oh, just just found out they they just closed. Oh, God damn
0: it! Well, in that case, uh, no, I don't have anything to plug.
1: I'm going to be doing a webcast uh, of Shakespeare of One Man Shakespeare's. Oh, nice! Because the world needs
0: Shakespeare, Dave. It does. It uh, it needs more. Bill. Um, well, hey, uh, well, how, you but know, um, how how was how it hosting? How did you feel about that? I mean, I felt
1: good about it, except I wish I had uh, better instincts on the movie. That's all. <laughs> I do think there's- You really did put, th-
0: Josh, you really put your reputation on the line here, and you whiffed hard. Um, I'm eating a lot of humble pie. I uh, I told you in part one that I'm never gonna take your recommendations the same way again. I probably am just never gonna take your recommendations at all ever again. Um, this has shattered- your reputation for me um, It will never recover credi- and, um, My
1: credibility is lost I'm like the Trump administration No don't, don't, don't get me well, wrong you had, credibility-
0: you had credibility to begin with though Is the problem and um, that is <laughs> uh, Way In the past now and um, You know I'm sorry Buddy but I, I think I hope you enjoyed hosting because uh, Due to this debacle I, I don't think you're really Going to be featured as a guest on this podcast wait what anymore
1: are you fucking kidding me oh my god yeah, sorry buddy has south park done their covid19 episode yet by the way uh, no <laughs> oh my god you guys kenny had covid19 the chinese virus dude don't say kenny had the chinese virus that's fucking racist dude it's not racist the president said it cut
0: to mr garrison as the president
1: oh my god you guys
0: Virus. Now, those were the most accurate impressions you've done all day. All right, sonny. I guess I've got to go. I'm Sean
1: Connery, Agamemnon and Celebrity Jeopardy panelist.
0: Well,
1: you're getting there. I'll work on it, buddy. We'll do an, a podcast called Impressions. we got all the time in the world now. Yes, we do. Signing off for Better Late Than Never on a real never, I'm Josh. I'm
0: Dave.